Is this as high as this will go, Bill? Um, it's risky to take it higher. Oh, okay. I took Pat's advice not to be passive to heart, and she's due to go before a committee on husband abuse sometime this week. So, <laughs> Mary talked about not many people being wise and not many people being rich, and I was thinking, well, I'm neither one of those, so I'm in good shape. Some 45, 50 years ago, somewhere in that neighborhood, the Encyclopedia Botanica published a 55-volume series entitled The Great Books of the Western World. They gathered the most eminent thinkers of the time and... Um, the writings of eminent people over the centuries together. And the list included ideas in law and science and philosophy, in history, love, and theology. And these essays were assembled for comparison and contrast to see which ones were worthy to be included. It didn't take long. To, it didn't take the serious reader very long to see that the longest essay in the great books was on God. And when the co-editor of the series, a man named Mortimer Adler, was asked by a reviewer why the essay on God merited such a long essay. He said, because more consequences for life and action follow from the affirmation or denial of God than any other basic question. You understand what he said? Whether you affirm, that means believe, agree, that God exists or you deny that he exists, that's the foundational question for everything because how you answer that question determines how you think about everything. Absolutely nothing has a more direct bearing on the moral choices made by individuals or the purposes that a society pursues than the answer to that question. Do you believe or you don't believe in God. They not only determine your personal destiny, but they determine the destiny of a nation, whether a nation believes or doesn't believe. It's not accidental that the key issues that we face today that stir so much emotion, so much uh, conviction, 
sooner or later boils down to the question, whether there is a God, and if there is, has he spoken? The English writer G.K. Chesterton, Chesterton said, The problem with Christianity is not that it's been tested or been tried and found wanting, that means lacking, but it has been found difficult and not tried. No one would ever say that being a Christian is not difficult, is not hard, is not a problem sometimes as far as what you face in the world. It won't take long to find out that if you profess to be a Christian, you are supposed to be an authority on everything that touches life, from philosophy to science and everything else, and the minute they find out that you don't know everything, Christianity is branded a fraud, because you're supposed to know it all, because you say you know God. But life is hard, and life is difficult, and there are some things in the Bible that are hard and difficult too. And I thought we'd try to look at one of them this morning and see how much progress we make. It's, it's really interesting that um, <clears throat> one of the great benefits for the uh, person that professes to be a teacher or an instructor in anything is that you get asked a lot of questions that make you say, my goodness, I'd have better go back and research this some more. Because the minute you think you know a subject fairly well, you find out how little you know it when somebody asks you about it. All of a sudden, you don't know as much as you thought you knew. Because you can't put it together in words that make a lot of sense even when they're coming out of your mouth, much less to the person you're answering. And I had a question like this two weeks ago when I was meeting with Son Locke. And um, we get together on a weekly basis, and he's very, very diligent in reading the scriptures. And by the way, he and his family are on, his way, on their way to Florida this morning. So, But he's been reading through the scriptures, like I say, diligently, and he'll ask me questions when we get together. And one of the questions a couple of weeks ago was out of the 16th chapter of Luke. And the 16th chapter of Luke has two parables in it. And we're going to look at one of them this morning. And the parable that we're going to look at covers the first 15 or so verses in Luke chapter 16. And it's been considered by many people to be by far the most difficult parable that Jesus spoke on. And you'll get more than one commentator say, I don't even want to talk about it because it's difficult. It's hard. But if you're a Christian, you're not allowed to skip over the difficult stuff. Because anybody can do that. But you're called to study to find out what does it really say and why do I not understand it. Because not God has not given us something that he doesn't want us to either understand or at least make a very strenuous effort to understand. Doesn't mean we're going to always succeed, but we're going to try. So, Luke 16.
Russians. I would never have a daughter from Russia. Oh yeah, I've got one, don't I? <laughs> Let's pray for just a moment. Lord, I just pray that you would help us to understand this, your word. For Jesus spoke this, and you had it recorded, Lord, for people, for all generations to read and to, to dig into it and to try to understand. And we know that our understanding comes only by the Spirit of God. And we pray that you might enlighten our darkness and um, make this so that we understand it, Lord. Or we understand it more and that we would keep digging till we understand it better and better as we live. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to read, if you've got your Bible, follow along the first 15 verses. Now it was also... Now he was also saying to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and this manager was reported to him as squandering, that means wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Give an accounting of your management, for you are no longer, you will no longer be manager. The manager said to himself, What shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I am not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I shall do, so that when I am removed from the management, people will welcome me into their homes. And he summoned each one of his master's debtors, and he began saying to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? And he said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. And his master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly, cleverly. For the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. And I say to you, make friends for yourself by means of the wealth of unrighteousness so that when it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. He who is faithful in very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust the true riches to you? And if you have not been faithful in the, in the use of what, of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, 
For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourself in the sight of men, but God knows your heart for what has been what is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. Easy, huh? The beginning is easy enough to understand. It was common at that time for a wealthy man to have a manager, a financial advisor, if you want to, to help him understand how to increase his wealth and to manage what he had. And they often lived in the same home as the owner. And the manager had all authority over what the owner had. He could buy and sell because he had the owner's authority, the owner's permission. And what he said, he could make, or he could make legally binding decisions on behalf of the owner. And in this parable, the manager's been caught. He's been caught wasting the owner's funds, his possessions. And he's been called to give his resignation. But before he gives a resignation, or in the midst of giving the resignation, he says, give an accounting for yourself. So the manager is in a difficult position. He says, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig ditches, I assume. I'm ashamed to beg. He's got no other skills, and nobody is going to hire him to be a manager when he's been accused of stealing. So the only solution he can come up with is to make sure the people who owe his master feel indebted to him. So how can he do it? And verses 4 through 7 again say, this is what he's going to do. I know what I shall do so that when I am removed from the management, people will welcome me into their homes. And he summoned each one of the master's debtors. And he began saying to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, so take the bill and quickly write down 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 50, excuse me, 80. Jewish law prevented what's called usury. Usury is excessive interest. You want to see excessive interest today? Look at a credit card company and see what they charge you if you don't pay the full amount when it's due. I mean, it's it's way up there. It, it gets up into the 20s and even 30% sometimes. That's usury. It's excessive interest. In fact, they weren't even supposed to charge interest at all to the poor 
and the destitute. Now, like always, man finds a way to get around God's law. And the Jews had found a way that they thought got them around God's law. What they would do, and you notice here that in this story, he's talking about wheat and oil, which were the two major commodities, oil being olive oil. So they have the grain and they have the oil, which were major commodities in Israel. And so the Pharisees had said, if a person has got any wheat at all, any oil at all, even though it's maybe it's just enough for one more meal, he's not completely destitute. So I can charge him, I can charge him exorbitant interest because he's not really poor, because he's still got something left. So obviously that's crooked as it can be, but they did that. So they charged interest on anybody and claimed that they were following the law of God, which they had missed by a mile. So, a lot of other merchants got around this. What they would do is they would take the price of a commodity and they would inflate the price greatly to cover the fact that they couldn't put a huge interest on it. So, you end up paying the same amount, an inflated amount, because they raised the price of it and they can say, well, look, I'm not charging you any interest or I'm charging you just a minor amount of interest. It's not usury, it's not inflated. So they got around it that way. It accomplished the same thing, an excessive markup for the product. So in this parable, the manager does away with the hidden high interest rate, and he makes a great friend of the debtor because he's reducing it and he's reducing it by bringing it back down to what the cost should have been to begin with. He's either gotten rid of the inflated cost, or he's gotten rid of the high interest. He's buying friends and favor for the future when he's not going to have a job. So he won't, he'll be unemployed, but he's going to be able to say, we're friends, I helped you, you helped me. So he uses his worldly possessions to help determine how things are going to go after he's dismissed. The owner's response in verse 8 is not at all what you expect to hear. And what Jesus says after that is shocking. Before looking at this again... We need to, to note that there's a difference between Luke 15 and Luke 16. In the chapter before this one, in Luke 15, Jesus is addressing the Pharisees and the scribes with parables about the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son, the prodigal son. Three parables in Luke 15, and he's talking to the Pharisees and the scribes. And in these parables, there is rejoicing at finding what is lost and joy in heaven over the sinners who repent. All this is, again, Jesus is saying to the scribes and the Pharisees, and it says they grumble because Jesus receives sinners and eats with them. 
And then in Luke 15, Jesus is not speaking to the scribes and Pharisees. He's speaking to the disciples. And he's telling them how the world acts and how they should act in contrast to the world. Verse 8 says, And the master prayed, excuse me, praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. The rich man may have been angry with what the manager did, but every debtor that he had was real happy because their debt had been reduced. And the manager can't go back to him and say, I'm going to reinstate your debt. Because if he does, he's got a, a bunch of really angry people and his reputation is going to be shot. He's cruel. He's a mean master. So he's not going to re install install the debt the manager is not being commended for his dishonesty for his corruption he's being praised for his shrewdness he's being praised for how clever he is his keen-wittedness and there's a great moral difference between saying i applaud the clever manager because he acted dishonestly and saying, I applaud the dishonest manager because he acted cleverly. They are two different things. So he's praising him for acting in a manner that's really clever in the world. You really came up with a great solution to further yourself. He's not praising him for being dishonest, but for being clever. Jesus is not endorsing dishonesty. He's not saying that it was acceptable to cheat people. He's not approving sin. Instead, Jesus is giving an example of how shrewdly, how clever non-Christians can be when they act in their own best interest. And you see that all the time. How a person can be very clever because they act in the things that are for themselves, lifting up themselves, their own best interest. That's what Jesus meant when he said, for the sons of this world, the sons of this world are non-Christians. The sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. The sons of light are Christians. So he's saying that the people in this world are more clever in dealing with their own kind than Christians are in dealing with the things of God. God's children should be shrewd with possessions by being generous. And it's not unusual for Jesus to talk this way. If you remember, in Matthew 10, he said that this people should be wise or shrewd, wise as serpents, but harmless as doves, innocent as doves. Be shrewd as a serpent, And a serpent is always a symbol of cleverness. The word shrewd is used in the Garden of Eden about Satan. Now it's used in a more crafty type of way than it's used here. 
but it's still shrewdness. When he deceives Adam and Eve, he's being clever. He's being crafty. He's, you can see the, 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 the term used more than once. Sadly, most Christians are not harmless as doves. And we're not very shrewd a lot of times either. At least we don't seem harmless and shrewd to the people of the world that look at the way we do things. They look at us and see words that come out of our mouth and actions that don't line up with it. So just like this unjust manager looked out for his interest for tomorrow, believers are to look out for their interest in heaven. What's going to be your interest in heaven? How are you going to run your life, devote your life, so that so that God looks at you and is pleased with how you use what he's given you? And now the parable gets even more complex. Verse 9, NIV, which I don't use that much, but it says, uh, it gives it a little better. Verse 9 says, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself, so that when it is gone, you will be welcome into eternal dwellings. The New American Standard says, the wealth of unrighteousness instead of worldly wealth. And that's the literal meaning. And it means money or possessions. And it doesn't mean wealth that you've gained through dishonesty. By unrighteous wealth, the way the Jews used it, it meant money that you had acquired legally, but that it was tainted in the sight of God. And it was tainted in the sight of God because you used it for purposes that didn't glorify God. So it's called unrighteous wealth, unrighteous mammon in King James. So the way you use it determines whether it's righteous or unrighteous wealth. And so you can gain wealth legally, legitimately, but it can still be called unrighteous wealth because of the way you use it. And it says, to gain friends. Now what in the world is he talking about when he says to gain friends? <clears throat> the dishonest manager used his master's money to gain friends. I don't know that you would use that word, but anyway, gain people that would give him favor. What is clear here is that whoever these friends are, the poor, the angels, well, whoever they're talking about, our wealth and possessions are to be used to gain eternal friends. That's the proper use of what we have. We're to give generously to further the gospel. We're not making people or proper use of what God has given us. Some have seen the word friends here as those that greet you when you get to heaven. They'll be saying the money that you gave influenced this, the project, this, and this is where I heard the gospel. 
Now, whether this is the right interpretation, I don't know, but some people see this as people greeting you in heaven and giving you thanks because you were good stewards of what God gave you and the things that God gave you that you used to further the gospel influenced them hearing the gospel. Of course, we know that God is the one that changes hearts, but he uses our resources. He uses us to accomplish his purposes. So that's one explanation of who these friends are. Whether that's correct, I don't know. I said it was hard. Verses 10 through 12. Again. Read. He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. Therefore, if you've not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you, will entrust the true riches to you? And if you've not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? God requires of us just stewardship. Stewardship means how do you use what you've been given? He requires us to use good stewardship, to be good stewards, not to be unjust stewards, not to squander and to waste what God's given you because scripture clearly tells us that everything that we've been given is a loan from God. We don't own it. He just gives it to us to use for a short period of time. So it really all belongs to God. How do we use what belongs to God? If we're not faithful in our worldly goods and our talents, that includes the abilities that you've got because you didn't gain these abilities. God gave them to you. How can we expect him to bless our lives if we waste what he's given us? Every opportunity in this world is a test of character. And the way we behave in small matters, in the way we behave in small matters, show whether or not we're fit to receive larger rewards, larger responsibilities. Our worldly possessions are given to us on trust. They don't really belong to us. But by the way we use them, we can show if we're fit to be trusted for real wealth. And real wealth is the wealth of the kingdom of God. You know, sometimes people say that if I had more, I would give more. And most of the time it's not true. Sometimes it is. There's a um, little quote that says, Dr. D. James Kennedy, who's dead now, but he was a famous pastor in Florida, told a story of a man who came <clears throat> to Peter Marshall, and Peter Marshall, years ago, was the chaplain of the U.S. Senate. A man came to Peter Marshall with a concern about tithing. Tithing is giving a portion of what you have for God's work. 
And the man told Peter Marshall, I've got a problem. I have been tithing for some time. It wasn't too bad when I was making $20,000 a year. I could afford to give $2,000. But you see, now I'm making $500,000 a year, and there's just no way I can afford to give $50,000 a year. So Peter Marshall reflected on this wealthy man's problem, his dilemma, but he didn't give him any advice. He simply said, yes, sir, I see that you have a problem. I think we ought to pray about it. Is that all right? So the man agreed, and Dr. Marshall bowed his head and prayed with boldness and authority. Dear Lord, this man has a problem, and I pray that you will help him. Please reduce his salary back to the place where he can afford to tithe. Jesus takes people's attitude to money as a means of teaching the lesson that discipleship has to be wholehearted. Faithfulness is no accident. It derives out of what we are in the inner man. The life of a faithful disciple is one of attention to the tasks that come our way every day. It's not something that you do occasionally. It's dealing with everything that faces you according to God's manner, God's talent, God's will within you. There's no insignificant matters before God. The one who is faithful with the nickels and dimes, with the little things of every day, is the one that can be trusted with the big events that come along. But it's easy to be indifferent to the small obligations, thinking, well, that doesn't matter. That's no big deal. What I do that. And then, contrastly, we believe, even though we're not faithful in the little things, that God should give us the big things to be responsible for. But God says, no, if you're not trustworthy in the little things, why should I trust you in the big things? More than likely, you're not going to see a lot of big things testing you this week, but there are a lot of little things that come along all the time just writing a note to somebody, visiting somebody in a nurse's home, giving somebody a a cup of water, sharing a meal, telling a child a story, on and on. Whoever is faithful in in a very little is faithful also in much. Verse 13. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. All or nothing. You can't serve both God and your worldly master, your possessions. God doesn't say, you may 
not serve both. He says you cannot serve both. It's impossible to live with a divided allegiance. I'm fully committed to this, and I'm fully committed to God. God says, no, you're not. You can't have love of worldly possessions and love for God, both as your number one goal in life. You cannot serve both. No matter how much money you have, you, you, can, you can lose it. And the manager learned this very quickly, all at once, the hard way. Proverbs 23 says, do not, be weary, do not weary yourselves to gain wealth. Cease from your consideration of it. When you set your eyes on it, it's gone. For wealth certainly makes itself makes itself wings, excuse me. For wealth certainly makes itself wings, like an eagle that flies toward the heavens, here today, gone tomorrow. And lastly, 14 and 15. Now the Pharisees who were lovers of money were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts, for that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. Strong words. You know, Jesus, as I said, had been addressing the disciples in this part of Luke. But the Pharisees were listening to what he said. They were gathered around and they heard everything that Jesus was saying. In chapter 15 in verse 2, where he's talking to the Pharisees, it says the Pharisees muttered or grumbled about what Jesus was saying in those parables because he ate with sinners. And now they're scoffing or sneering at Jesus. And these terms are more harsh than the earlier ones. Before they just grumbled or muttered or under their breath were saying things and now they're sneering and scoffing and this man is crazy. He's he's a liar. So there are stronger words here. Jesus has separated God and money and they sneer at him for having this perspective for having this view that means they've got a theology in which God and wealth are joined together in a very comfortable way prosperity is a clear sign in their eyes that God is for them and Jesus points to their basic problem The Pharisees are seeking approval from the wrong source. And they're seeking to be judged according to the wrong standards. They are striving to be justified by men. They want the praise of men. So their standard has to be the things that people can see and evaluate. 
If you want to be judged by a man, you've got to be doing things that men approve of. And that's what they're doing. They're going by outward appearances to get the approval of people. They acted in a way that would attract attention to themselves and make them look righteous according to human judging. Their actions included long prayers. Don't Short prayers are not good enough. You want people to have to listen to you as they go on and on. Obvious fasting and contributions. I fast, and I'm going to make sure you know I'm fasting so you can say, wow, isn't he a godly man? And I'm going to give contributions, but I'm going to give it in public view and so everybody can see what I'm doing. They wanted places of prominence at banquets and meals and ceremonies. I want to sit up front so people can look at me. Ostentatious clothing. That means all kinds of clothing that would draw attention to yourself. They did that. And they walked a considerable distance from anybody they considered a sinner. They didn't want to be identified with people that they considered below them, which was most people, frankly. And they were meticulous in their ceremonial washings. Made a big deal out of cleansing their hands. And Jesus talked about them being clean on the outside, but full of dead men's bones on the inside. Whited sepulchers, graveyards inside. And the worst thing you can tell a Jew is to touch, touch a dead body because then they're ceremoniously unclean. So all these things the Pharisees did. And in all of this, they're really hypocrites and not really righteous at all. Their love of money proves their attachment to their lack of attachment to eternal things. They sought the praise of men, but what they got was the condemnation of God. Jesus was not saying that the values of the world are not quite like the values of God, or that they're different at times, or that they're frequently different. He's saying that the value systems of the world are detestable, or an abomination to God. It's pretty clear, isn't it? So we've looked at half of Luke. The whole chapter revolves around one's attitude and the use of material possessions. Jesus is continually teaching his disciples, and he's aware that the Pharisees are listening in on everything he's saying. The Pharisees are lovers of money, so Jesus uses two parables about rich men in chapter 16. One man, the one we just looked at, has a crooked employee, and he's about to be fired, And the other one that we won't look at is about a rich man who finds himself suffering in hell after a lifetime of selfish luxury. Our attachment to our possessions and our use of our possessions has an eternal effect on our lives. We can't love them and love God both. One's going to drown out the other if we try. 
the most famous verse probably in the Old Testament, to the Jew anyway, is hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And this is what Jesus is saying. You can't have a divided loyalty. Because if your loyalty is your possessions, God is way down the list. And God says, I'm not going to be down the list because that proves you don't love me at all. Let's pray. Lord, help us to take your words to our heart. And Lord, not to just have them fleeting and disappear, but have them to take deep root and um, just explore, Lord, how it touches our lives and what it means, Lord, so that we don't misinterpret your word, but that we fully grab it and live it and love it. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Was it about Mammon? About Mr. Rogers. Right? About what? Mr. Rogers, Fred Rogers. Okay. And um, as you're talking, I'm thinking that so was his life. He was such a humble, godly man, but he was given this platform to to have this television show, and the the story basically was a reporter was supposed to do a story on him, and this reporter had a history of finding the dirt on anybody and exposing the person for the fraud that he really was. And um, just the way Fred Rogers lived his life and how he he had read all these this reporter's stories, but he welcomed him, and he just poured out love to this man, and it changed him. And um, it, But, I mean, just seeing it, the way he lived his life, um, it was just really remarkable. It's a neat story. So. He was very attentive to the little things. Yeah. yeah. Well, if we think the way we live our lives doesn't affect other people, we're sadly mistaken. Yeah. If you don't believe it, just go live with a bunch of drunks, with a bunch of crooks for a while, and see how it affects your thinking. <coughs> because you'll begin to think, that, well, maybe this doesn't matter that much after all. Stealing a little bit, that's not a big deal. It's all right to take a little, as long as you don't take a lot. Maybe that's what the uh, steward thought. I'm just taking a little. I'm just... But it caught up with him, and it always does. Nobody escapes forever. Preston, you want to come up and we'll have communion?